Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, often observed that things would be infinitely better in this world if people not only talked of their ideals, but also acted upon them. And this theme was picked up uh, by the guardian of the Baha'i faith later, i.e. the grandson of Abdul Baha. Our speaker this evening is an exemplary um, illustration of this point. She could be seen in some ways as an educational expert, and that would be enough. Um, we can describe her as an author in um, multiple genres, an education development specialist, someone who sits on boards concerned with education, human relations, the arts, environment. However, she is also a practitioner who has made profound improvements to hundreds of people's lives. She's the founder of the Full Circle Learning Model, and those of you who have seen her previous talk will understand how important that is to assist um, people in often disadvantaged areas of the world to have high quality education. She is speaking to us today using as her title a quotation again from Abdul Baha that we as human beings should be stars in the eyes of God's compassion. And it is to that that she is speaking today. Dr. Teresa Langness. Thank you, Stephen. I am so humbled um, by that introduction that you make it hard to go on. Maybe we should all just go home and read the books of Abdu'l-Baha. But, but now that you're all gathered, I guess I better go on. I hope I will say something that will be edifying to you because this is a favorite, favorite subject of mine. And there are many people in this room who, who you yourselves are wonderful examples of what Abdu'l-Baha taught us. We cannot approach this subject of compassion without focusing on this recent role model in history. If I could share my screen. Let's focus tonight on the recent role model in history of one who taught us so much about the spiritual character of true civilization. Originally, his name was Abbas Effendi, but he took on a name that better reflected what he truly was, servant, servant of the light, servant of Baha'u'llah, servant of humanity. Born in 1844 as the oldest son of Baha'u'llah, he accompanied his father in exile and imprisonment. And years after the Baha'i faith was founded, he attended to its tasks of administration and growth. He added to its writings and interpretations and like his father, he faced a lifetime of oppression for this cause. 
He spread its teachings far and wide, not only directly, but indirectly by leading the exemplary life we were asked to observe and emulate. When the people could not access Baha'u'llah, they could observe the more easily obtainable presence of Abdu'l-Baha. Late in life, he traveled to Egypt and Europe and America to meet the many requests of the people. And although he would not allow others to call him a prophet, he became known by many in Akka and abroad as the master. From the age of 20 until the end of his life, the master was a constant stream of inspiration. Through his formal writings, his tablets or letters, his speeches, his books, but largely through his work, through his actions. Eloquent and yet accessible, metaphorical and yet relevant. His writings updated the traditional modes of sacred literature to the needs of his time. He wrote in Persian, Arabic, and Turkish, but about four-fifths of his works were in Persian. The scholar Amin Banani remarked on his writings, the animus is the revelation of Baha'u'llah. The clay is the Persian language with its characteristics. The mystery of his person is the form and the unique style. It is distinctive, unmistakably personal, and therefore original. And I might add, the meaning behind his message was never needed more than it is today. 2021 marks a century since the passing of Abdu'l-Baha. Baha'is will commemorate this year, many of us, by consciously striving more than ever to emulate his exemplary life. His call to arise and to serve as stars in the eyes of God's compassion is a little intimidating, but it calls us all to examine more carefully how he told us to do this. What are the examples that we can glean from his writings about just what he meant when he gave us this challenge? We can look at some of the movements he unleashed that, that unfolded over the century past his death. How do those play out in the lives of individuals? We can reflect on the lives lived in the context of work as worship. We can define the acts of compassion that unfolded and the exigencies of the age in which we live now and what this means to our own lives. Here are some of his words. O oh, ye bright lamps in the assemblage of his knowledge, may the soft breathings of God pass over you. May the glory of God illumine the horizon of your hearts. Ye are the stars in the skies of God's compassion. Ye are the abundant grace of God's oneness that is shed upon the essences of all created things. Ye are the birds that soar upward in the firmament of knowledge, the royal falcons on the wrist of God. Like a candle must ye shed your light, 
And even as the soft breezes of God must ye blow across the world, even as the splendors shed by the true sun must ye illumine the hearts of humankind. Now is the time to serve. We must gird ourselves for service, kindle love's flame and burn away in its heat. And then for his sake on the field of sacrifice, fling down our lives. Let us defeat the hosts of self and passion. Well it is with the doers of great deeds. Abdu'l-Bahá's rich metaphors often compared the sun with the revelation of Baha'u'lláh. And so in this passage of which I've only read excerpts, it seems that living in, accord in accordance with the unfolding teachings of this era, we might feel impelled to shed knowledge, compassion and the light of truth on the hearts of all humankind. We might say, well, surely this wasn't written for me or for here and now. It was written for those who've given up their lives for their beliefs in a more dangerous time and place. But let's look at this with a fresher eye. In the Baha'i faith, since we have no clergy, we as individuals must study the passages and try to discern meaning from them and try to understand well, what could this mean? What, what is a compassionate deed? What are the prerequisites? or the reinforcements of great deeds according to these passages. Well, we, what we heard about were illumined hearts in this passage and knowledge so that we can illuminate other hearts and compassion or God's oneness shed upon all things. Service, compassionate purpose in our life's work. Selflessness we heard about. Which, which might mean other directedness as a mindset, actually preferring selflessness to our own concerns and sacrifice or readiness to fling down our own lives. And when you ask a Baha'i, what does it look like to live the Baha'i life? Many people will think of Baha'u'llah's words when he said, we must now highly resolve to arise and lay hold of all those instrumentalities that promote the peace and well-being and happiness, the knowledge, culture, and industry, the dignity, value, and station of the entire human race. Here, he clarifies the previous poetic passage by telling us in practical terms that we must not only share our convictions, but also live them by striving to improve the station of everyone. His own life surely demonstrated what some of those instrumentalities were that he was referring to. By considering the movements he promoted and the ones he prompted, the, the paths of work that he chose and the ones he endorsed, the example that he set, we can seek purpose in the various aspects of our own work and our own lives and we can also accept the forms of compassion that others give as being both valid and valuable. Let's start by looking at what some of those prerequisites are for great deeds. Illumined hearts and prayer as a conduit for illumined hearts. The writings of Abdu'l-Baha and the prayers that he wrote 
Seek direct assistance in becoming a sign of mercy, a promoter of concord and selflessness. They also request a level of oneness with the creator that transcends the murmur of syllables and sounds. This is surely what he emulated when he acted with an illumined heart each day to discern what others might need. Most of you will recall the story of Abdu'l-Baha when Lua Getzinger was visiting him and she sought him out one day and found him quietly gazing out at the sea. And she asked him what he was doing and he said he was looking for souls. She remarked that she couldn't imagine how he could find them by looking out at the ocean tides. And he smiled at her and said, well, 18 years ago, I found you, didn't I? And sure enough, she remembered that long before she ever knew him, 18 years ago on that day, she had been guided to seek for divine inspiration and had found the Baha'i faith. He had intuited her needs even from afar through prayer. So as we seek illumination, we may find someone who needs divine compassion, who needs insight or love or assistance. We may find that this illumination is our conduit for compassion. Now, Abdu'l-Baha always recommended imagining that a prayer was answered by the time we had finished praying. And maybe that's how he was so uh, dependably given this gift of insight and discernment about the needs of others. However, he didn't stop there. He didn't leave the responsibility for problem solving to the capable hands of God. He believed in scholarship as worship. He believed in the value of research and knowledge, both in his travels and in his writings. He praised those scholars who sought knowledge, not for self-aggrandizement, but for the purpose of solving the problems of society. How otherwise could we achieve these lofty goals for humanity? He praised those accomplished men of learning who meticulously researched such sciences as are profitable to mankind and who devote themselves to the training of students of capacity. He visited scientists, inventors, entrepreneurs, politicians, philosophers. He believed that we do need to know about history and science and economics, social science, any subject that can help advance the progress of humankind. He acknowledged that just as the humble laborer experiences work as worship, the same is true of the scholar who performs his work in a spirit of service. The master visited the humblest and the highest servants. A desire to see whole societies flourish was reflected in the way he greeted people from all strata of society. He was willing to accept meetings with the architects of a nation's destiny, as well as to postpone a meeting with an important leader to wait for someone he intuitively knew had walked many hours to meet with him. So great was his compassion. He knew that compassion was case specific. His influence in encouraging then radical levels of racial integration, women's rights and other emerging issues was well known. Thus when he traveled, the spiritual energy he dispatched quietly advanced a century of work for the common good now, at the same time, 
that Abdu'l-Baha was inheriting leadership of the Baha'i faith upon the passing of Baha'u'llah, a shift was taking place in the world of science and the world at large. Heretofore, research for its own sake had caught hold of the scientific community and had led to the invention of such things as dynamite by Alfred Nobel. Well, some of you may know the story when Nobel read his own prematurely printed obituary, calling him the merchant of death for the high death toll in the Franco-Prussian War, he was devastated. He reversed his position on the purpose of research and he redirected his legacy toward the goal of altruism and the goals that Abdu'l-Baha had prescribed 13 years earlier when he wrote The Secret of Divine Civilization. Nobel then charged several institutions in Sweden with the identification each year of the research that had most advanced the greatest benefit for humankind instead of the greatest destruction. And the rest is history. The Nobel tradition has now well outlived its author's intended goal of one century and has linked altruism with notoriety in multiple arenas of study. Meanwhile, Abdu'l-Baha praised civil service as well for its potential as compassionate work in the world. He said he agreed with Franklin Roosevelt that the welfare of each of us is dependent on the welfare of all of us, but that prejudice had become a barrier to progress. He consulted with members of governments and political leaders, but only when they held to a common vision of concern for their constituents. He honored the sagacious leaders who are the well-wishers of the people and who seek out such means as will increase the wealth and comfort of their citizens. In the coming century, those who connected with this message allowed it to influence their own leadership. Queen Marie of Romania became a Baha'i, calling the message wondrous and saying it is Christ's message taken up anew in the same words almost, but it adapted to the next thousand years. Prime Minister Tony Blair wrote on more than one occasion, in many ways, Baha'is embody the spirit of community cohesion that is so important to our society. Al Gore mentioned that the faith warns us not only to properly regard the relationship between humankind and nature, but also the one between civilization and the environment. He quoted the writings saying, man is organic with the world. His inner life molds the environment and is itself deeply affected by it. The one acts upon the other. The master's many writings challenged people in every field to transcend the boundaries of injustice. In his own travels, he broke the color barriers through actual integration and through trend-setting speeches that had ripple effects, direct and indirect. Others followed his example. St. Barb Baker might otherwise have spent his career as a colonialist, but when he saw how indigenous people of North Africa had been treated and how their landscape had been ruined, he ended up taking a beating on behalf of his workers and then started the transcontinental reforestation movement that has influenced a century of environmental change. And in another example, agronomist Norman Borlaug 
who won the Nobel Prize in 1970, began as a child of Norwegian immigrant with Czech immigrants who all spoke the language of hunger. They couldn't speak together except to sing a certain song about planting corn in the cornfields. And he began to realize the importance of unity. Well, he grew up and studied science and worked across two continents to understand wheat production. He saved more lives from famine than any researcher of his time. And in his lectures to students, he explained that the role of the scientist is to apply their skills for the well-being of mankind throughout the world. Abdul Baha visited Alexander Graham Bell in 1912 in Washington, DC. Samuel Morse had invented the telegraph, as we know, in the year of Abdul Baha's birth. And through the intervening years, because of Bell's love of his deaf wife, he had tried to follow up with the, an invention that might help her playing on those early inventions. And instead, he stumbled upon the invention called the telephone. By way of encouragement, Abdul Baha complimented him on his fortitude and his compassion. His daily work had truly brought forth a great deed. Abdul Baha also told him that before long we would see research that would allow anyone anywhere in the world to speak to anyone else face to face. Well, guess what? A century later, in 1980, a lady named Radia Perlman became the mother of the internet, which now unites people across nations. Her problem solving connected people even to a greater extent than she had imagined. Technologists still have the chance to apply their work in a worshipful way through compassionate eyes. When we look at today's bridging systems, we see opportunities to uh, make income available to people in the developing world, such as shareholder farmers who can't make it to the bank. We see opportunities to improve global agriculture, and we see opportunities to create more equity in the workplace, such as one Nobel Prize winner was able to do lots of opportunities. Social scientists in the century after Abdu'l-Bahá delved into a field called altruism studies. Uh, one study looked for common threads in early childhood experiences of adult leaders of humanitarian organizations. If they could discover in every race and culture what leads to altruism, they could surely create these patterns worldwide and they were able to identify some answers to that question. What would society look like if we could create the patterns among all people of benevolent leaders? Similarly, meanwhile, a researcher called Jennifer Doudna won the Nobel Prize this year because she looked beyond the original questions of uh, genetic editing and said, how can we use this research to cure genetic disease? Well, after she won the Nobel Prize, she used the funds to go on and look for new cures and treatments for COVID-19. All examples of things that have happened in a century since Abdu'l-Bahá released this message to the world about how we can view our work 
as a compassionate tool for serving humanity. So what did Abdu'l-Bahá think about the arts? Are those also tools for compassion? Well, in the late 19th century, we saw um, many people pursue this question. First, we'd seen the French writer Victor Hugo proclaim that a day would come when cannons would be museum pieces. We saw Alfred Lord Tennyson imagine a day when the battle flags would be replaced in the Parliament of Man with a global federation. And then we saw the great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, who wrote in 1908, we spend our lives trying to unlock the mystery of the universe, but there was a Turkish prisoner who had the key. Baha'u'llah's teachings now present us with the highest and purest form of religion, religious teaching. I know of no other so profound. Well, Tolstoy, despite the challenges with translation, tried to write letters to Abdu'l-Bahá, and they never had a chance to meet in person, but he remained interested in the faith throughout his life. Tolstoy turned away from works of popular fiction and began to pursue an ascetic spiritual life and to write about proletarian themes. His concept of religion involved love, nonviolence, unity, and grassroots development. He inspired Gandhi, and both of them saw Abdu'l-Bahá as an exemplar. The Tolstoyan movement, in turn, evolved through Gandhi and had a deep impact on leaders across Europe, as well as on pacifists such as Martin Luther King Jr. and Cesar Chavez. Thus, the teachings created a ripple effect, directly and indirectly. Helen Keller wrote of the faith, what nobler theme than the good of the world and the nations can occupy our lives. And Gandhi followed up with the Baha'i faith is a solace to mankind. Other writers as well carried the message to society about enhancing human purpose, the famous Baha'i writer who had launched the Harlem Renaissance, Alan Locke, introduced the master to W.E.B. Du Bois, who was fascinated with Abdu'l-Bahá's perspective. Du Bois asked the master to speak to the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and Du Bois devoted a whole issue of his publication to these speeches, calling the master the man of the month. Abdu'l-Bahá advanced the idea that human identities are spiritual and transcendent, that rather than race, it's this spiritual identity that is the overriding one with which we are born. Thus, he influenced gatherings where he not only broke the color line with people such as Louis Gregory or advised interracial marriage, but also set a spiritual tone for the civil rights movement. Du Bois' wife later became a Baha'i. Abdu'l-Bahá also influenced the great Lebanese writer Khalil Gibran, whose work in turn has retained many followers throughout the world. A devout Christian, Gibran found resonance in the teachings of Baha'u'lláh and declared his Arabic writings the finest literature ever written. He had longed to write a book about Christ and began a work called Jesus, Son of Man. His friend and co-artist Juliet Thompson told him in 1912, that Abdu'l-Bahá was coming for a visit and commissioned him to paint Abdu'l-Bahá. You see the illustration here. 
This opportunity humbled Khalil Gibran. Meeting the master stunned him and shaped not only his art, but his written descriptions of the nature of the Christ. Until then, he had never met a human embodiment of the character in his book, which was published in 1928 and which still inspires readers today. There are worlds in his soul, Gibran said of the master. For his part, the master encouraged Gibran to pursue his work, saying, prophets and poets see the light of God. Abdu'l-Baha also praised visual arts as a tool for compassion and illumination. He said, in this wonderful new age, art is worship. When thy fingers grasp the paintbrush, it is as if thou wert at prayer in the temple. The French painter Jules Breton is just one of many who used his gift to dignify the station of humanity and to call attention to the oppressed. He was orphaned when young and developed sensitivity toward those whose everyday existence was uncertain. Many of his paintings featured the peasant women known as gleaners or gatherers of grain. They gathered the produce left in the fields and distributed it among the poor and the destitute. This is one of his most famous paintings, Calling in the Gleaners, which depicted the peasant life in his own hometown. Now, when we think about Abdu'l-Baha and his descriptions of uh, what it felt like when to be released from prison, when people would ask him that question, he would say that prison is a state of mind and that the prison of self is the greatest prison. So we must strive not just for unattachment, but for um, radiant acquiescence in suffering. We, we think of artists such as this who use their own suffering as a tool to express compassion, the great deed of helping others who were oppressed themselves. Often such a personal challenge enhances their own insight and their, their use of art as a work of worship and a work of compassion. Such was also the case for the photographer Dorothea Lange, major influence on art in her century. Here on the left, she is depicting um, the internment camps of World War II, where the Japanese Americans had to live in horse stalls. And you see the pathos, which, which she was able to depict a father and a son. Many, many of her photographs feature the Great Depression and families such as this one on the right, which were uh, just immersed in hunger and want. She, she once made the quote, the camera is an instrument that teaches us to see without a camera. Well, as a child, she had polio and she used her own sense of suffering as a tool to express compassion for others. Elizabeth Catlett, she used her art as a tool for compassion to liberate her people from self-imposed limitations on their own potential. This too is compassionate service and she was greatly influenced by the theories of the Baha'i Alan Locke. Chester Kahn, a dear friend of mine, a wonderful Baha'i, 
He brought many people from the Navajo Nation or the Diné people to an awareness of the Baha'i faith as a young man when he realized its many parallels with Navajo tradition. As a small boy herding sheep, he would while away the hours painting the sheep on the rocks. And this is how he first became a mural artist. He was later uh, recognized as a national living treasure for his mural art. He used his art to portray cultural and spiritual traditions and to walk the beauty way, as they say. And of course, we all know Hooper Dunbar, retired member of the Pi Universal House of Justice, who exhibits his art in New York and Los Angeles and Spain. And many of his abstract paintings center on the forces of light and darkness and the nobility of the human spirit, paralleling the themes in his written work. He will tell you anytime you ask that he, he sees art as an act of worship. So far, we've seen several ways in which work is worship for scientists, social scientists, entrepreneurs, statesmen, artists who responded to the spirit of the age. They saw these, their own values and their own work validated by Abdu'l-Baha who himself demonstrated how spiritual and material progress are fundamentally spiritual in nature. He demonstrated it through his teachings, his daily actions, his work in the world, whether he visited state houses, churches, his path was always the same. His message was always the same. How do our own humanitarian lives also reflect compassion? Abdu'l-Baha carried the idea of spreading knowledge into the classroom, tutoring children of his enemies, and also helping to found educational organizations. For example, he helped Lady Sarah Bloomfield found Save the Children. She became a Baha'i in 1907 and was very close to the master. When so many children suffered in the Great War, he helped her start an international campaign to rally the world's influential thinkers and ordinary people to help these children. He would write letters to advise the funders and to help them hold the vision and the values for this humanitarian organization. Today, Save the Children has worked in more than 120 countries. It's not, of course, the only NGO inspired by the example of Abdu'l-Baha. Many of you in this room have also served in many quiet, humble ways to help NGOs in the world and around the world. As Baha'i communities work with their own local worth uh, communities and their youth in the Baha'i context, so do they also work with humanitarian organizations or as teachers in schools to spread this concept of love and concern for the human family as an impetus for learning. We find places in the world where youth like these are studying nonviolent processes and spiritual leadership to ensure compassionate approaches to problem solving and actions to divert civil unrest. These girls are working with uh, the Nobel Prize winner you see in the back there um, to help women speak out for peace. In this picture, schools in two different countries are working to bring about unity and an end to tribal conflict to promote appreciation 
of diversity among different tribes. For those who work in education or humanitarian organizations, a sense of the common nobility of the human spirit drives this desire to unite the world's people. These students learned how to prevent specific diseases and volunteered to share their knowledge throughout 10 different communities. In cases such as this, the clear benefits of blending compassion and knowledge being both physical and spiritual benefits. And of course, there are also material benefits where you see communities uh, co combining their knowledge of agriculture and education to feed their most vulnerable members. The pandemic has also clarified our perceptions of work as worship. What does compassionate work look like? What does it mean to require the flinging down of lives in ways that we had not formerly imagined now during the age of the pandemic? In the past, we may have had a different sense of what that meant, but now we see frontline workers who just by going to work every day have had to wonder whether they will come home again, whether their family members will go to the hospital because they chose to compassionately give. Are these what we might consider great deeds in new ways? This idea of selfless giving. Consider the definitions of martyrdom. Extreme personal sacrifice for a cause, we can all agree on that. What about transcending setbacks to advance the common good? Or withstanding almost unbearable tests during routine compassionate service? We're expanding our definition of what it means to fling down our lives. And those simple actions can take on more significant meanings today. For the master, accumulated kindnesses became great deeds. The writer Myron Phelps described a typical year in the life of Abdu'l-Bahá. He said, someday at this season, you may see the poor of Akka gathered at one of the shops where clothes are sold, receiving cloaks from the master. Upon many, especially the most infirm or crippled, he himself places the garment adjusts it with his own hands and strokes it approvingly as if to say, there, now you will do well. There are five or 600 poor in Aka, to all of whom he gives a warm garment every year. Nor is it only the beggars he remembers. Those respectable poor who cannot beg, but must suffer in silence, whose daily labor will not support their families, to these, he sends bread in secret. Whether in exile, in his travels, or wherever he went around the world, he gave. In this picture, New York's most destitute men who were out of work lined up to receive a coin from him, just as the poor and the frail in Aka had done. His unlimited charity spoke volumes to those he met abroad. He also devised programs to feed the poor during the Spanish Civil War and to feed the soldiers. There were many reasons why 10,000 people from every walk of life attended his funeral. 
He did not want to be worshipped, but presented his example of service to be emulated. It is not based on our wealth that we give. The privilege of offering compassionate service belongs to everyone. Everyone who belongs to the human family can emulate this example, surely because we are all equal noble beings and stars in the skies of God's compassion. We never know which of our actions will blossom into great deeds. Will there be unforeseen benefits from our daily work, from some encounter we have with a stranger or a neighbor, some creative idea, some piece of research, some wisdom that we share with someone who seeks us out? Will our prayers inspire us to be in the right place at the right time for someone in our orbit in their moment of need? Will our studies equip us with just the right phrase when it's needed, when someone is seeking truth, so that we may lead them to their heart's desire or to the process of illumination? The students in this picture studied together for a number of years. One of the students had a brother who did not join with the others, but instead joined a violent gang. But the boy in this picture did. He stayed with the group. He learned specifically the habit of sacrifice. And when he was age 11, as a result of it, he and a friend jumped in a river to save a classmate's life, even though they couldn't swim. Because as they said, they couldn't swim, but they could sacrifice. Well, when they saved her life, that became a turning point. And he decided to give up his life for service, even though his parents and all their parents were farm workers in a migrant community and had not been able to graduate from elementary school. He decided he was going to get a scholarship and become an engineer to expand his ability to serve because he knew he had some intellectual gifts. Well, he did so. And he became an engineer and went on to design satellites that could look for drought areas in the world to improve food security in those areas where farms were not finding sufficient water supplies. So while his father still provides citrus fruits for the surrounding communities and for the fruit basket of a nation, he feeds the world by combining his spiritual gifts and his intellectual gifts. He found the path of service that was all his own because people said the right things to him. People taught him when he was very young to find his path to compassionate service. So sometimes even by being there for the children, we may be expanding their field of service in ways that will not be known to us for many, many years, maybe for a generation. After all is said and done, sharing the truth with one soul may illuminate our most compassionate hour. The Baha'i writings urge us to apply all of our virtues to do so. They say, O oh friends, be not careless of the virtues 
with which you have been endowed. Neither be neglectful of your high destiny. Ye are the stars of the heaven of understanding, the breeze that stirreth at the break of day, the soft flowing waters upon which depend, must depend the very life of all men. In essence, our daily work is our worship. Our path of service is our worship. Our study, our research, our creativity. As we unite, create, heal, feed, share, and sacrifice, as long as we keep the motivation of the love of God and the love of humankind at the heart of all we do, then we are the stars in the skies of God's compassion. Well it is with the doers of great deeds, we have been given this assurance of help from the divine concourse. For as Baha'u'llah said, dost thou reckon thyself only a puny form when the universe is folded within? Thank you for your time. Teresa, that was wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. I, I think what, what I took from that was that in addition to being an inspiration in what he said, actually Abdu'l-Bahá was also an inspiration to how we should all be in terms of hundreds upon hundreds of acts of kindness.